Hi, welcome. My name is Vanita Jones, and I'm part of the teaching team for Women in the Word. And I have had enough hot tea this morning to float a battleship. So I may have to leave in the middle. I don't know. I woke up with some stuff Monday, and it is all right here. So we're going to hope this goes well. I also want to say hello to all the women at West Campus who are joining us as we blaze through the Acts of the Apostle. And, you know, the other thing we happen to be blazing through right now is February. I'm still writing 2014, and we are almost at the end of February. This is crazy. But you know how I know when it's February? I know by two different things. First of all, I know it's February because usually the temperatures are really, really high or really, really low. Now, I can give you this, and you can take it to the bank. If I'm sitting on metal bleachers watching baseball or soccer, it's really, really low. And if I'm sitting in a gymnastics competition inside a musty old gym, it's really, really high. And I'm stuck in the gym for five solid hours. That's how I know it's February. But you know what else I know when it's February? The award shows. It's won every single weekend. There's the, the Grammys, the Academy Awards, and, and we even have them here at Christ Chapel, the Globies. There are award shows everywhere. Do, how many of you enjoy watching the, the award shows? I don't. Oh my gosh, they are so boring to me, and they're so long. And usually I, I, I'm going to do it, you know, in our neighborhood. They have watching parties. It's like a big deal. They get dressed up and they take food and it's this big party. And I'll be honest with you, within like 30 minutes, I am sound asleep or I'm reading a book or I'm needle pointing or I'm looking at Pinterest trying to figure out tomorrow's menu. And I completely forget that it's even on. And then I fall asleep by the time the big awards come along three and a half hours later. And I have to get up in the morning and see who even won by reading the newspaper. So I'm not the best award show person at all. But I know there are a lot of people that love them. And I know the one thing you can count on with award shows is that you are going to see the who's who in the world of entertainment. It's the big names, the ones you hear about. And you're going to hear some amazing acceptance speeches. Amazing, I think. They tell me that because they play them on YouTube over and over. Some of them are going to bring a tear to your eye because they're so touching. And some of them are going to make you shake your head in disbelief, like, is that all that's in there? I just, it, it just astounds me. And you're going to see some beautiful fashion and some not-so-beautiful fashion, some that we still talk about years later. It's kind of iconic, some of the dresses. But no matter what award show it is or what category they're addressing, there's always that moment. You know that moment when it gets really quiet? And they've announced the nominees, and here's the presenter. And they're trying to get that seal off the envelope. And they finally pry it open, and he goes, and the award goes to, and they announce the winner. And the crowd goes wild, and the camera finds the winner out in the audience, and they're like, like they're so shocked. I had no idea this was going to happen. And they race up to the stage, and they get the award in the microphone, and, and they always say something like, I had no idea. I would have prepared ahead of time. Cue the eye roll. Yeah, right. And then they reach in and they pull out something that looks like a napkin. And it's got writing all over it. And they start off. 
thanking everyone from God or a higher power of some kind, all the way through their hairdresser, makeup artist, grandmother, whoever gets mentioned. And you know, as we study Acts, I feel like if there was the who's who of the kingdom of God, I think we'd see them right here in Acts. I think we'd see people, like if we had the Kingdom Choice Awards, you know? And God is our presenter. And I think there'd be people winning awards like Peter, John, Stephen, Philip, Ananias, not the one from Acts 5, but the one we studied today, and Barnabas, and, and certainly, last but definitely not least, we'd hear from Saul. And all these men in the early church would be nominated for something. And I'm sure when they get up there and they give their acceptance speech, it would start off by giving God the glory for what they've been able to accomplish in their life. And then they would start to thank all the people in their lives that have made all the things possible for them. All the people behind the scenes even. You know, one of the things I find really interesting about God is that he desires to use his creation, all of us in this fallen world, to carry out his purposes. Because let's be honest here. He doesn't need us to do it. He can do this on his own. He's definitely qualified. But he wants to use us to accomplish his plans. See, he's not only an all-knowing God and an all-powerful God. But he's also a loving and caring God who desires to have a relationship with each and every one of his children. And he knows that by calling us and equipping us to carry out his purposes, that we're going to ultimately grow deeper in love with him, our faith is going to grow, and he's going to be glorified because of our weaknesses. That happens when he puts us in a position to struggle, and then we have to look to him for our power and our strength and trust him with the outcome. He calls each one of us to different things and he equips us accordingly to carry out our mission. And no task, we learned this week, is too large or too small to be noticed and appreciated by God. If God had an award show, there would definitely be awards for the Bible greats like Moses and Noah and Mary. All of these people would be winning awards. But I think we heard when this, we learned about one this week would definitely win an award. A major award. And his name is Saul. You know, a couple weeks ago we learned about Stephen. And as Acts 7 is closing, we read that Stephen, because of his preaching of the gospel, he was stoned to death. And then chapter 8 opens up and we learn that Saul of Tarsus is the one that gave the... He's there cheering him on. He signed off on that execution. That's the Saul of Tarsus that we're going to hear about is a who's who in the kingdom of God. Open up your Bibles and let's start off in chapter 9. I'm going to read the first nine verses. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. 
So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. That would be up for an Academy Award. That is huge. As chapter 9 opens up, we see Saul, who is a Jew as well as a Roman citizen. He's become a little more infamous than famous at this point because he's killing Christians left and right. And the ones he's not killing, he's throwing into prison. Both men and women, he didn't discriminate. He was equal with each one of them. He was on this murderous rampage, and he decided to charge up to Syria and unleash his fury on the Christians in in Syria. And these are the Christians that had fled Jerusalem because, remember, they had just seen Stephen be killed. And so they fled in fear to a town about 150, 175 miles northeast of Jerusalem to a city called Damascus which happens to be the second oldest city still in existence today. I would love to go see that city. So much history there. You know, I said something that describes Saul as a raging bull. And I think for all of us that live in Fort Worth, we get this. We've been to the stock show. Surely at least once in your life you've seen a bull ride. And after that bull rider gets bucked off, the clowns come out and they try to mess with them and, and guide them back to the pen. But what does that bull do? He is like snorting and he's pawing at the ground and he's just turning his head side to side as he snorts and just drools everywhere. He's disgusting. It's almost like he's saying, who's next? Make my day. That was Saul. That was Saul at the beginning of chapter 9. And in in just a few short verses, he's going to be completely transformed. He had a bloody, thirsty determination to seek out and kill and imprison anyone who was following Jesus. And that blind hatred for the Christians led Saul to go to the high priests. And he asked for letters to go to the synagogues in Damascus and continue doing what he'd been doing. And these letters are going to give him permission to round up the followers of the way, as Saul would call them, the Christians, and take them back to Jerusalem, and he was going to kill them or imprison them. So after receiving the desired paperwork, he he was granted the permission, and he continues to persecute the Christians. He sets out for Damascus. Now this is about a six-day trip for someone on a horse or on foot. And near the end of that journey, something was about to happen that was going to dramatically change the course of Saul's life. And it was going to change a history of Christianity as well. Because aside from the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, what was about to happen on that dusty road to Damascus was going to be one of the most important events in all of Christianity. Because while on that violent mission he set out for, Saul had a face-to-face meeting with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And he received a message from heaven. Do you realize that Saul, Saul of Tarsus, if he had remained a rabbi, if he had remained that Jewish rabbi, and this event had never happened, he had never became Paul, that 13 books of the New Testament would never have been written? He wrote almost half of the books of the New Testament. And he carried the good news of Christ from one end of the Roman Empire to the other. It's like 10,000 miles of journey. They estimate that he did. And listen to this. Listen to what his future is going to look like. He would serve the Lord for 30 years, refusing to give up after three shipwrecks, after five beatings of 39 lashes each, after three beatings with a Roman rod. I have no idea what it is. I don't even want one beating with that. A public stoning that nearly killed him, and no less than five imprisonments. And most likely there was even more than that. 
This was his future held for him. Saul would have definitely won the award for best apostle in a leading role. If we had kingdom choice awards today. And the scripture says this. It says, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. There wasn't this leading up to it. He didn't have to be worked up to it. There was no, no easing him into it. No warning at all. Suddenly, suddenly, his life was taking a sudden turn. And not just a little bitty turn, a 180 degree turn. And there, it says, was a light brighter than the sun. A bright, so bright that it blinded him. But you know what? Amazingly enough, it awakened all his other senses. And suddenly he knew that God was in control. I think in that split second, he knew that. And he was not. You know, for three decades, Saul had been in control of his own life. He worked as a Jewish rabbi, and it was second to none. He was known far and wide. And he was well on his way on this road to Damascus to making his name even greater than it already was. And in less than one second, God turned that raging bull into a helpless lamb. The very man who would become the apostle to the Gentiles as God continued to work out his plan of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. And, it's, and then being completely blinded, all of his other senses wake up and he hears this. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul replied, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, who have you, you have been persecuting I think those words had felt to Saul like being slammed in the head with a sledgehammer. It hit him right between the eyes. Because, see, Saul had thought all along that what he was doing was in God's will. He thought this is what he was supposed to be doing. You know, one reason he may have thought, had such a hard time accepting Jesus as a Messiah is that it would have been hard for anybody in that time in the Jewish faith to believe that the promised Messiah would ever be crucified on a tree. See, according to Jewish law, anyone that was crucified on a tree like Jesus was cursed by God. Look at your verse sheet on Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23. It says, and if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a man hanged is cursed by God. So Saul's logic was that God was never going to take a cursed man and make him the promised Messiah. This couldn't be true. He truly believed that the Christians were a dangerous sect, a cult almost, that was trying to eliminate the traditional Jewish faith. And it proved that even though Saul was a brilliant Jewish leader, he was so spiritually blinded. And now on this road to Damascus, he was having a very personal meeting with the risen Lord. A come to Jesus meeting, as we call it, at the Jones house. Face to face. And it caused him to be physically blinded as well in his spiritual blindness. But from that very second when Saul's eyes were blinded, his spiritual eyes were being opened up to the truths of God. And during that very personal come to Jesus meeting on the road to Damascus, Saul realized two really important things. See, first he realized that this Jesus that they'd been talking about, he truly was the Messiah. He had risen from the dead. And then he learned this. He learned he's a sinner and he's going to be judged by God. And those had to sink in and it had to hit him like a hammer in the middle of the forehead. 
Everything he had valued up to this point now seemed like filthy rags. As he was up against the holiness of God and the full display of this light, as it shined down brighter than the sun. And the proud and ruthless Saul was now broken and helpless. A condition I'm sure he had never, ever found himself in before. The great theologian Charles Spurgeon says this about Saul. He said, Saul was a great man. And I have no doubt that on the road to Damascus, he rode a very high horse. But a few seconds sufficed to alter his life. How soon God brought that man down. Saul had set out from Jerusalem to take captive the, the Christians in Damascus. But instead, he was taken captive. He was taken captive by the risen Savior and his life would never be the same. And instead of riding into Damascus on that high horse that Charles Spurgeon talks about, he was being led helplessly by his travel companions to a house on Straight Street owned by a man named Judas. But that's not where his story ends at all. Obviously, God, see, God was, wasn't quite finished with Saul. So over the next few days, God was going to be preparing Saul to hear a message that was going to come from a virtual unknown Christian in Damascus. And Saul, with his newfound humility, was well on his way to becoming God's chosen instrument. But there was still more to happen. Now, lest you think that Saul was so wildly popular and was going to win this uh, choice award because of his rugged good looks or his wonderful speaking abilities... Think again, neither was apparently true of this guy. Look at what he says in 2 Corinthians 10.10 on your verse sheet. It says, for they, his, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak, they're being kind, and his speech of no account. It's almost like they should have said, bless his heart. <laughs> he wasn't known, and God didn't call him because he was ruggedly good looking. And then he was an eloquent talker. But God knew he was a re relentless doer. He was passionate. And that's what he found in Saul of Tarsus. God wanted someone and needed someone who would stand up to the intolerant Jewish traditionalist. And guess who he chose to do it? A Jewish, intolerant Jewish traditionalist. It seems logical. And you know, God wasn't really looking for anyone that was sin-free or perfect. Look at what he says in 1 Timothy about himself. And First uh, Timothy 1, 12 through 15. Paul says this, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful and appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of the Lord overflowed with, for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. He called himself the chief of sinners. See, that should give all of us great hope. The whole conversion of Paul should give us so much hope, because if God can turn this fierce opponent who had killed Christians and imprisoned Christians and turn him into one of his most willing and effective servants... He's able to save anyone. And some of you may need to hear that. And there may be someone in your life that you think there is no way this person can be saved. I've washed my hands of this. They're a lost cause. See, Saul's conversion reminds us that God's plans for us are bigger than our past sin. We can't outdo God with our sin. 
His grace comes racing in. We serve a big, powerful, and mighty God that can do anything he desires to do. But guess what? We also serve a compassionate, gentle, loving God who desires nothing more than to have a relationship with each and every one of you. Not just any old relationship, but one that is completely dependent and that we're constantly growing deeper and deeper. And one of the ways our relationship is able to grow with our Heavenly Father is when He calls us to step out on faith, obey His commands, even when it doesn't sound logical and even when it's kind of scary. And that's about what we're going to see right now in Acts 9. Let's read the next several verses. I'm going to read 10 through 19. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here, he, and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on his name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me by, by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food he was strengthened. Meet Ananias. Not that Ananias from Acts 5 obviously. He's the newer, upgraded version of Ananias, the 2.0. He's doing things right. And Dr. Luke isn't going to give us a whole lot to go on here with this, about this guy. He does tell us he's a Christ follower from Damascus. But from that, from what we just read about Ananias, I think we conclude, conclude some things about this guy. That although he was an unknown to most, Ananias was obviously an obedient follower of Christ. And he was used by God to perform an extraordinary miracle. And that miracle was healing Saul of his blindness and putting him on the path to sharing the good news with the Jews and the Gentiles. In fact, in the Kingdom Choice Awards, I'm sure he would have won Best Supporting Christian Award. Easily, hands down. And on the same note, and on, on a side note though, do you know that Christian was never used, that word was not used, actually, at this, until like later on, like, Chapter 11, I think it is, in Acts. We hear, we hear Christians called the way, the saints, all that call on his name. We hear brethren. And then we hear, in this one, the most frequently hear disciples. It's all the same. They're all Christ followers. Regardless of the name, they all have given their life to Christ Jesus. Now, I don't know if you're anything like me, but when I've, I've read this, oh gosh, how many times have you read this chapter? And I kind of skimmed over Ananias. This guy doesn't get enough press. I, I, I had to read it several times, and it, and it wasn't sinking in. And then I read a book called uh, Paul, A Man of Grace and Grit. I read it this summer in preparation for a trip we were going to go on. And it was written by Charles Swindoll. 
And in the chapter of Ananias, he begins by writing something that helped me put all of this into perspective. This was no little bitty command. This was a very big command. Listen to what what Charles Swindoll writes. He said, let's pretend it's 1940. You've moved into the outskirts of Vienna, Austria. The Nazis have occupied the beloved city you call home. Now the entire country has fallen under Nazi occupation and you are Jewish. Most of your relatives have either vanished, been arrested, or secretly in the cover of darkness of armed soldiers or fled. You've made the painful decision to gather your family and flee your comfortable home near the city of your birth and take refuge in a remote cottage far away in the mountains. The night before you're about to escape, you're wakened by a strange presence in your bedroom. Rubbing your eyes, you're apprehensive. You sit up in the bed and you focus your thoughts. Am I dreaming? And then fear grips you. No, I recognize this voice. And it says, arise and go to a street named Wickenburg, just to the west of the campus of the University of Vienna. There you will find a home owned by Franz Kaiser. When you enter there, you'll find a man from Upper Austria. His name is Adolf Hitler. I have appeared to him, and he is now praying. He is blind, and I've revealed myself to him. Go and touch him, and he will regain his eyesight, and he will save your people. You sat stunned. Desperately trying to make sense of what you just heard, you can scarcely believe this command. Because Vienna is crawling with grim-faced Nazis carrying loaded weapons. And their orders are to carry out and capture Jews. Is it a, is it a joke? Is this a setup? No, the voice was real and the command was real. And then Swindoll asked the reader this question. Would you go? Wow, would you? And after reading that and letting it sink in for a bit, I began to see this Ananias in a completely different light. See, he was living in a very dark time in the period of Christianity. He was living in Damascus during a period of time when Christians are being severely beaten, persecuted, killed, imprisoned. And the leader, none other than Saul of Tarsus, the dreaded enemy of Christ, is the very man God is asking or telling you to go lay your hand on And heal his blindness. You have to remember that shortly. This this occurred right after Stephen was killed. This had to be fresh on his mind. So everybody's mind. This had passed through the Christian population. And they knew this. And it was very fresh on their minds. And after pondering on this for a while. I had to ask myself that very question. Would I go? How about you? Would you go? I don't know. I have to admit, I had a hard time answering that question honestly. And after realizing what a daunting task Ananias had been called, out, called to carry out, I began to wonder this. Why in the world would God even ask this unknown Christian to do this huge task? I mean, because think about it. He didn't have to have Ananias do this. He could have done this by himself. He, didn't, he could have converted Saul completely on his own. He's very capable to carry this conversion of this raging bull of a man into what he needed. He didn't need Ananias to help him. So why did he use Ananias to kick it up in the driveway? Why? 
It stopped me dead in my tracks. And, and then I realized as I, as I look at the Bible, the entire Bible is about God, the powerful, almighty God, using fragile people like us to carry out his purposes. Not because, not because he, he needed us to, he wanted us to. And not in little ways, just little ways, like I would do when I asked my kids to help me bake when they were little. Here, dump this in, you know, or stir this and get them busy over there. Not that. He gave them big rolls, like baking the whole cake. You know, some of the most famous Bible names come to mind when I think about this. But then, you know, there are some, some unknowns, too, some Virtually unknowns. And some of them are so unknown, we only read about them one time and we never hear about them again in the rest of the Bible. And each time, his power and his might is on display. But so is his unconditional great love for his children. Just like in the case of Ananias, if it hadn't, hadn't been for the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, we probably would have never heard of the Ananias. Or at least this Ananias. I don't think God uses the obscure saint to carry out his plans because he can and because he's God and he can do what he wants. I think he does it because he desires us to grow deeper and deeper in love with him and to begin to trust him more and more as he asks us to do scary things and things that just don't sound logical sometimes. The bright light and voice from heaven was extraordinary, but the visit from Ananias, the obscure follower of Christ, was so ordinary. But both of these were equally important to God. We must never underestimate the value of the ordinary in the kingdom of God. Think about this. Peter, quite extraordinary, right? He led thousands of people to Christ in Jerusalem. Philip, another quite, quite more than ordinary man, he led people in Samaria to Christ. But Ananias... Quite ordinary, virtually unknown kind of ordinary, the kind you never hear about in the Bible again, ordinary. He led Saul of Tarsus to a saving faith in Christ. And that man, Saul of Tarsus, later became Paul the Apostle, whose life and ministry have influenced people and nations ever since. Even secular Historians today will confess that Paul was and still is one of the most important, significant figures in the history of the church. See, our task is to help lead people to Christ. And God's task is to use them to bring him glory. And every person is extraordinary to him, no matter what your service is. This account of Ananias should remind us that we should never be afraid to follow God's will. And Ananias shows us exactly what that should look like. He gives us a very realistic way to follow God's will. First, he sa- we see that Ananias heard God's call to service. Now, granted, we may never hear God audibly call us. But we spend time in prayer and we prepare our hearts to hear him. We're going to hear him through his word, through others who speak God's truths, in our quiet time with him. I am sure that Ananias was able to discern God's voice because he had spent time listening to God's voice. That's how you prepare to hear God. And I'm convinced that he did that by spending time in prayer, reading about God, and listening to the others that told God's truths. His heart was ready to hear God. Is your heart prepared to receive a call from God? 
Is your heart prepared to hear God's voice when he calls? Would you, like Ananias, be able to discern God's voice if he called? Look at 2 Timothy 2, 2 through 20-21. through 21. It says, Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some of honorable use and some of dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. See, we face decisions every single day that will either honor God or dishonor God. And just like Ananias, we can be used by God if we have made ourselves honorable vessels. We prepare our hearts to hear God's voice by spending time in prayer and listening to his voice, reading and studying his word, and listening to when others are telling his truths of God's word. Let's be women who are prepared. Because when you least expect it, God may call you to be an Ananias. And you most certainly want to be ready to carry out that task. Secondly, we see Ananias question God's call to service. Now I think it's okay for to question God a little bit on, when he asks us to do something big like this. I'm quite sure he would rather have you question it a little bit than to completely disregard his, his call altogether. You notice he didn't strike Ananias down for asking. He didn't shake his head in disbelief and walk off going, oh, I'll find someone else to do this. But no, he, he knew that Ananias needed a little encouragement. And he gives him a firm go. It's like saying, trust me, I got this. Just go be my vessel. That's all I need you to do. And lovingly, he gives Ananias just a little more information. You know, he tells him that he tells him that he is going to be that, that Saul is going to be the chosen instrument to carry the name of Jesus. And then we see Ananias' response. So Ananias departed. No more questions asked. Immediately, he accepted God's calls, called the service. And I heard this acceptance described like this. It said, it was somewhere between a fearful confusion and a quiet resolve. I've been there a couple times. How about you? Not quite sure if I'm going the right direction, if this is right, but I'm going to do what God called me to do. But nonetheless, it's obedience. And he stepped out on that dangerous street and he risked it all to carry God's message to, to a house on Straight Street. And he entered the house of Judas and saw infamous Saul of Tarsus kneeling humbly in prayer, just like God had told him. He had to just relax a little bit more as he saw the revelation from Christ. Just a little more and a little more and a little more. He relaxed into this obedience. And I love this next part. He trusted God so completely that he touched this notorious killer and he immediately he accepted him as one of his own and he called him brother. That was so precious to me. Listen to this account of this tender scene written by John Stott in his book called The Spirit, the Church, and the World. He says, There he placed his hands on him, perhaps to identify with him as he prayed for the healing of his blindness and the fullness of the Spirit to empower him for his ministry. Even more, I suspect that this laying on of hands was a gesture of love to a blind man who could not see the smile on Ananias' face, but he could feel the warm pressure of his hands touching him. At the same time, Ananias addressed him as Brother Saul, and I, Stott says, will never fail to be moved by these words. They were, may well have been the very first words Saul heard from Christian lips after his conversion. 
And they were words of fraternal love and welcome. I believe that Saul's heart soared at that moment. When he heard these words from Ananias, he felt complete love and acceptance. You know, Ananias has been called one of the forgotten heroes of the faith. And there are countless other Christians serving behind the scenes all over the world and right here at Christ Chapel. We may never even know their names. We may never know what they do. It could be something as simple as changing out these pens in the pew. That's somebody's job. And we may never see the impact that their service has on the kingdom of God. And that's okay. They're being obedient. And the story of Ananias and Saul ends with Saul's sight restored and he's being baptized in preparation for taking the good news of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. Now, I just think him being baptized and standing waist deep, I've often wondered if he was covered with the blood of the Christians he had been killing, if it was still on his clothes, as he was being washed white with Christ's blood. What an amazing transformation this was. From a raging bull to a dependent lamb. But the baptism of Saul was only the beginning of God's plan in his life. And the story of Ananias teaches each one of us that carrying out God's plan is about being faithful. It's not about being famous. And I am positive from that day forward, Ananias was changed. How could you not be? He had prepared his heart. He had heard God's call, and he immediately obeyed God's call, and he would never be the same as he grew deeper in love with the risen Jesus. Follow along, and let's see what happens with Paul after he's baptized. Let's start at 20. I'm going to read to 30. For some days he was... uh, For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was Christ. When many days had passed... The Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, but they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Immediately we see Saul preaching, immediately teaching in the synagogues. And we see that the infamous Saul of Tarsus is having quite an effect in Damascus kind of confounded and bewilderment and all kinds of different effects. Some of them just couldn't even believe this is really true. Now, it's believed that somewhere between 21 and 23, those verses, somewhere some say it's 21 and 22, and some say it's 22 and 23, that Paul, or Saul, leaves Damascus and he travels to um, Arabia. And during that time, he grows deeper and learns more about the Lord. Look at what it says in Galatians 1.15, Uh, 1, 15 through 18, your verse sheet. And this is how we kind of know he went to Arabia. 
But when he who set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Caiaphas and remained with him 15 days. So somewhere in there, he's taken this three-year journey, even though it says after a few days, it was a lot of few days, and he had gone back to Damascus. It's not completely clear when, um, but it's believed that he was there possibly three years and was probably instructed by the Lord to go to Arabia. I think that he might have wanted him a little isolated from the other apostles, the other Christians, um, off on his own so he could get this clarified in his head without other people's views and everything being brought into it that God could teach him directly. Look at Galatians 1, 11 through 12 on your verse sheet. It says, For I have you known, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor as I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. See, not only had God revealed himself to Saul on that road to Damascus, I think he probably continued to reveal himself while he was in Arabia. And he was preparing him for this future mission. But regardless of the reason he traveled to Arabia, in verse 23 we see him back in Damascus. And his message is not being very well received. In fact, the uh, Hellenist Jews are wanting to kill him. And several of the disciples had to stage this daring escape and lower him by basket over the wall. I thought this was so perfect picture of seeing Saul the raging bull being lowered over the wall in a basket in this completely dependent way as he escaped. The persecutor had become the persecuted. And so after his daring escape from Damascus, he travels back to where it all started, back to Jerusalem. And as he tries to join up with these other disciples in Jerusalem, he's met with some more opposition. And the fear and the suspicion, I, I suspect it came from the fact that he was gone for three years. I mean, the story of his conversion had to have gotten back to, the, to Jerusalem. That was a pretty big deal. And then he just kind of disappeared off the face of the earth for three years. And I can imagine they were saying things like, where has he been? Well, why didn't he come back here? Why didn't he come back sooner? What's he been doing all this time? And who, who is he to dare call himself an apostle? I would imagine the rumors were swirling around Jerusalem at that time about Saul at that point. But guess what? In to save the day comes Barnabas. Barnabas, the man of encouragement, the son of encouragement, the same Barnabas from Acts 4. And we see him doing that very thing he was nicknamed for, encouraging. And in the Kingdom Choice Awards, I'm sure there was a special achievement award somewhere. And I think that a special achievement award would be for someone who accomplishes a task with effort and courage and skill. And I think that's what he does here. He's very diplomatic. And the award would go to Barnabas. Barnabas, formerly known as Joseph, for paving the way for Saul, soon to be known as Paul, as he carried out his mission. Known as a son of encouragement, God used Barnabas to encourage the apostles to accept Saul, the former persecutor of the Christians, as one of their very own. Way back in Acts 4, Barnabas was called to be a leader in sharing with the church. And now Barnabas was again being called to be a leader among the early believers. And he encouraged them to accept Saul completely. And he did this by testifying to Saul's conversion. He told them that Saul's transformation happened way back on that road to Damascus. 
But he wasn't that same person. He was a new creature in Christ. And that testimony encouraged these believers. And they united behind Saul. And as he took the good news to the Gentiles. Barnabas' special gift, spiritual gift, was encouragement. And he used it to unify God's people. Paul addresses our individual gifts in his letter to the Romans, chapter 12, verses 5, 4, uh, verses 5 through 8. It says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given us. Let us use them, if prophecy in proportion of our faith, if service in our serving, the, uh, the ones who teach in his teaching, the ones who exhort in his exhortation, the ones who contribute in generosity, the ones who lead with zeal, and the ones who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. How are you using your, your spiritual gifts? How are you using your gifts? Are you using your gifts given to you by God to encourage unity among God's people? If not, why? Because you should. Because Barnabas shows us that encouraging unity among believers causes the gospel to spread to unbelievers. And that's what we're called to do. We may not be the ones on the front line. Not at all. But Barnabas shows us that we all play an important role, even if it's behind the scenes. He shows us that our simple, quiet act of service is equally important to God. Look at what it says in Acts 9.31. As we finish up. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. It says that the church, that's us, was able to multiply. That a church like us is able to multiply if we're united. And that those within the church that make up that church are walking in the fear of the Lord. And are being comforted and guided by the Holy Spirit. See, as followers of Christ... We're all up for Lifetime Achievement Awards. All of us, every single one of us, as followers of Christ, God uses our service, no matter how big or how small, to carry the gospel of Jesus to a lost world. And verse 31 tells us everything we need to know about our mission. So we're called to keep peace and unity within the church, and we're called to walk in the fear of the Lord. God reserves the right to interrupt anyone's life at any time to ask them to serve. In fact, he does it because he loves us. And he wants us to grow stronger and deeper in love with him. And he promises this every time we take that step of faith. He says that when we have been called by him, he will also, we will also be guided and comforted by the Holy Spirit. God's work is ongoing even today. The workers are constantly changing, but his work never stops. No matter how large or how small our calls may seem, we're reminded in Acts 9 that our behind-the-scenes service is no less important than another's very public service. Will you commit today to preparing your heart to hear God's call? See, he desires nothing more than to give you and I opportunities to serve him and help him accomplish his purposes. Please pray with me. Father, we love you. We love your word. Father, what a man Ananias was, that he would follow your command so quickly and so completely. 
Father, pray that all of us would be women that are prepared to hear your call, that we would spend time with you, that we would treasure your word, and that we would be so ready to answer that call. And Lord, I pray that we would trust you with however the results come out. Father, we love you. We love your word. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.